The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very warm welcome everybody. This is Squawk Box. The headlines this Monday morning. A phase one deal. Chinese stocks follow a jump on Wall Street after the US and China Inca trade truce and the first part of an agreement with agricultural purchases at its core. A tremendous deal for the farmers. Uh, a purchase of from 40 to 50 billion dollars worth of agricultural products. That would be two and a half, three times what China had purchased at its highest point thus far. China's trade with the U.S. falls again in September, however, as overall imports and exports drop by more than expected. Here in Parliament, the U.K. and E.U. both agree a lot of work needs to be done on a Brexit deal to get to that stage in time for a key summit later this week. But as Her Majesty the Queen gets set for the state opening of Parliament and the Queen's speech, which will lay out the government's agenda going forward. The U.S. pulls its last troops from northern Syria amid a growing uh, fear on what's playing out on the ground there as uh, there is defensive from Turkey while President Trump threatens powerful sanctions on Ankara. And Typhoon Hagabus uh, wrecks havoc on Japan, leaving more than 30 people dead, while rescue teams search for survivors after the worst storm to hit the country in decades. So a very warm welcome. How long have we waited for some progress on a trade agreement? And then we get this announcement on Friday. And I think we're all scratching our heads asking, is this the big one? Is this the beginning of the pathway that takes us to a full comprehensive agreement between the United States and China? Or is this just the stumbling first step of a trading relationship that is going to be difficult for some time to come? Of course, it could be both. But let's get into the details. A very substantial phase one deal is how the president himself described Friday's tentative trade agreement between the U.S. and China. The first part of what's expected to be several phases of negotiations covers areas like agriculture, currency and intellectual property rights. The president also agreed to suspend raising tariffs to 30% on $250 billion worth of Chinese goods. Now, while both sides agree progress has been made, the pact is yet to be officially written and could take weeks to finalize. And as you can see, the key parts of the agenda up on our wall here, agriculture, currency, intellectual property, and no tariff hike. For the time being, I think this is the critical part that the markets will take away, that we do not get the immediate escalation 
on tariffs, even as we have uncertainty around other elements of this trade deal. But the Americans, no doubt, will be very pleased to see agricultural purchases back on the table. And given some of the challenges the Chinese are seeing around food inflation, particularly as a result of the swine flu, they no doubt will be pleased to be able to buy U.S. agricultural products once again. Well, let's get out to Eunice. She has more from Beijing on this story. And Eunice, this looks like a very interesting first step, but so many people, it seems, are underwhelmed by what's been delivered. Yeah, that's right. And I think that uh, we can already see that in in uh, the way the Chinese have been describing the um, outcome of the trade talks versus what President Trump said. So President Trump has said that this was the biggest uh, deal that the U.S. has had, or at least one of the biggest deals with China. Um, he uh, explained that it was so big that it has to be done in phases, uh, whereas the Chinese have been uh, much more pragmatic in the way they describe it, saying that the uh, trade talks resulted in substantial progress. So they haven't been using the term a deal. Now, um, in terms of uh, what the Chinese have been able to achieve uh, from Beijing's perspective, they have actually done quite a bit. They've been able to get the tariffs that were supposed to take place tomorrow on $250 billion worth of goods. This is a 25% to 30%. That was put on hold, which was something that Beijing wanted to see. Also, the discussions around a Chinese tech giant Huawei are now going to be tracked separately. And Beijing had been lobbying for that, to try to get some of the more sensitive national security issues um, uh, separate from uh, what they see as uh, a trade deal that could potentially happen and alleviate some of the uncertainty on the economy. So the third point is that the um, IP and uh, trickier structural issues are also kind of being kicked uh, uh, down to down the road a bit, uh, whereby the um, announcement was on Friday that those issues uh, could be uh, coming could come in. In, in later phases. And uh, that, again, is something that um, just from everything that we've seen with the way Beijing has operated, that the negotiators didn't want to have to address uh, those issues because it's so uh, potentially painful to the way they run the Chinese economy. Um, the Chinese, though, have agreed to increase their purchases of agricultural products to as much as $50 billion. But it's still unclear um, exactly whether or not they're going to follow through with that. What was interesting here was that uh, state media had been um, very silent on um, on the uh, $50 billion purchase. Even so, President Trump has described this uh, latest development on Friday as uh, the U.S. and China uh, coming on the verge of a new love fest. This is what he said. Phase two will start negotiations almost immediately after we've concluded phase one and papered it. And I think phase one should happen uh, pretty quickly. So you have intellectual property. Uh, we have an agreement on intellectual property. Financial services, the banks and all of the financial services companies will be very, very happy with what we've been able to get. The goal of the negotiators now is to try to hammer out the text of a deal in time for the APEC summit, which takes place between um, November 16th and, and 17th. And that's when the two presidents are supposed to be meeting up. But again, like I said, the, the Chinese state media quite cautious in its tone as to whether or not this is going to turn into anything meaningful. In fact, the state paper, China Daily, said uh, the champagne should probably be kept on ice at least until the two presidents put pen to 
to paper, as based on its past practice, there is always a possibility that Washington may decide to cancel. So the U.S., as you guys know, has um, often accused the the Chinese uh, for backtracking on their promises. So I think that uh, what we're seeing is two sides still very much uh, distrustful of each other, uh, despite uh, what President Trump says is a love fest. Eunice, terrific summary of what we saw. Thank you so much for that. Uh, let's then take this to the markets. And I think um, you sensed in the uh, delivery that Eunice gave us there that there is a tempering of expectations around this deal. People are, I think, pleased to see some progress and maybe a, a lowering of the tone of the language that we've seen between these two sides. But when you look at how the major averages uh, ran through the session as we began to get news of some form of agreement on this old salami slice deal, um, you can see that people weren't overwhelmed. There was a kind of, okay, well, let's read the next flash and see where that takes us. And by the end of the session, don't get me wrong, we were up broadly about 1% across the major indices, but it wasn't that great relief rally that I think some have been looking for on the announcement of a major comprehensive deal. So step by step, let's have a look at how we did on the tech story, because I think the chip makers in particular are fascinating here, because a big element of this negotiation has been around access to the Chinese market for chip makers and whether China is allowed to purchase uh, U.S. supplied chips. So we got a notable jump in some of those companies that would be beneficiaries. And of course, the tech sector as a whole looks at the Chinese market rather hungrily, hoping to get fuller access to that market. And I think now that we've seen a little bit of progress in this area, perhaps the hope and expectation, particularly from the tech companies, is that this will lead to some further agreements that resolve some of the disputes around technology. But I know we've got a skeptic at the desk. We'll get to him in just a moment. We'll find out what he has to say about the likelihood that we're going to move forward with something more comprehensive. And Key amongst this uh, list of uh, chip companies, as you can see, is those that are particularly sensitive to sales into the Chinese market, like Micron Technology and Xilinx. But broadly, as you can see, there was a strong rally here, and this sector in particular outperformed what we saw on the broader U.S. indices. I think you're being a bit harsh on markets. If I look at some of the trading ranges, it feels as though you've seen that escalation to some of the peaks of the trading ranges all on this news flow. And, and perhaps that's enough at this point. And if you take a look at some of the, the Asian markets, the Shanghai market is the same. We, we've traveled towards some of the, the high levels that we've witnessed uh, in 2019 on the Shanghai Composite. If you take out the exception of early this year, recent uh, peaks in that range, we've managed to close the gap. 3,014, a pop of 1.4% on the, the phase one of a deal gains across the chart in lockstep as you can see and uh, some gains too as the yuan starts to make a little bit of headway versus the US dollar. The opening caused European markets very strong Friday session are getting more than 2% for the stock Europe 600. The market that was worth watching was the DAX. That was the market that's reclaimed some of its peaks uh, around 2019 but just a little bit cautious this morning you can see and a lot of Brexit news as well as we talk about a trade deal. The market's also been watching a Brexit deal. Big crunch time talks this week. We've got a lot of discussions taking place behind the scenes in the countdown to the European summit later on this week. So all eyes on the progression around Brexit. Meantime, President Trump praised China following the agreement and said the deal is fair for both sides. We've been 
through a very tough negotiation. There's never been a negotiation like this. In all fairness, I give China tremendous credit because for 25 or 30 years, they've done very well with the U.S. And, and now we're doing something jointly. We're doing it in a fair manner. Uh, I, I give China credit for what they've done over the last 30 years. Tremendous credit. I don't blame China. I blame the people representing our country. Now uh, we have a deal that I think ultimately is going to be just fantastic for China and fantastic for the United States. Elsewhere, China's exports and imports both dropped by more than expected in September as the impact of the trade war continues to impact the world's second largest economy. Beijing's trade with the U.S. fell again, with export data showing imports from the U.S. fell by 20.6% year-over-year, while exports to the U.S. fell by 17.8%. Ken Wong joins us now, client portfolio manager at East Spring Investments. Ken, it feels as though we've been taken along on a very long journey to arrive at phase one of a trade deal between the U.S. and China. What do you make of that journey and what still is left in this uh, transition to a broader trade deal? The thing is that we've seen this before, right? I mean, technically it's a trade deal, but then there's still quite a bit of tariffs that's still going on. So I think right now, you know, the wording might sound good, but there's still a lot of obstacles for both sides to still overcome. And so it is some positive for the, um, for the markets in the short term, but then from our point of views, with the tariffs still ongoing, you're still going to have a lot of weakening of the economy, whether it be it in China and potentially even into, for the U.S. when we head to 2020. So what is the point of a, a trade deal at, at this point in time? Because we've been negotiating, what, 15 months now. Effectively, we've gotten past a big political moment in China. The U.S. is in countdown to the next presidential election. Is this all about stemming some of the unease in markets that we've been seeing that's been undermining the economy? A, a bit, but I kind of look at this as like an MOU, right? Both sides want to have some form of minor agreements. But then with that said, you know, there's still a lot to overcome. And that's one of the biggest problems because, yes, like you said, there is the presidential elections for next year. And, you know, does China and will China want to, you know, sort of give in into some of these things? Because what China is giving in already right now are things that they will have to do anyways. Having more agricultural, you know, purchases and then potentially having the U.S. delaying the tariffs um, increase for October 15th. So those are things I think both sides were wanting to do anyways. So whether or not what happens for December 15th, and potential for the existing tariffs, which is going on, those are gonna be very big hurdles. And unfortunately right now, it's very difficult to see how both sides can come to agreement, you know, sort of in a, in a very fast sort of moment. The rebound has been interesting. There will be those who are now thinking about whether they chase the upside that we've seen yep. uh, in the last sort of 72 hours or whatever from these markets. China looks relatively cheap, as you point out they in do. your notes. Yes. The question though is, uh, even as we see an improvement in sentiment around this trade story, the uh, September export data has been weak. Correct. So has the damage already been done? And to what extent will the hope around trade meet the negativity around the forces that have already been unleashed that seem to be weakening momentum in the Chinese economy? Yeah, that's a great question, because the thing is, is that with this you know, temporary agreement, nothing's going to change for Q4, you know, sort of from our views and from our point of view, mm. you know, the economy in China is still going to be very much sort of in a sort of in a bit of more of a not necessarily slowing down to some extent. Mm. Um, hopefully, you know, potentially we can get some further stimulus and potentially any further, <coughs> um, you know, positives coming from the Chinese government. Maybe that could help, 
you know, into towards 2020. But what you talked about in terms of valuations in China, they are very inexpensive right now. When you look at it, markets are trading roughly around 12 times earnings, whether it be it on the A shares, CSI 300, or through MSCI China. And when you sort of look at where we are with earnings growth, it's actually not that bad. You know, despite a lot of this talks of trade war and everything else, it's hurt the exporters in China. But when you look at specifically a lot of the domestic plays, when you look at, for instance, some of the uh, holdings that we have, whether it be on our A share funds or with our specifically offshore funds, we're very much focused on the consumer place. We're focused on healthcare. We're focused on IT stocks. And these are names that are much more focused on the domestic side of the Chinese economy. And, and these sectors are still trending very well in China. You focus ac uh, across Asia as a whole, so yep. not just China. Yep. So on a relative basis, does China still look like the most attractive market or would you direct our audience to other opportunities, perhaps in Thailand, the Philippines or somewhere else? Yeah, I mean, Philippines looks quite attractive as well. When you look at sort of where we are from a price to earnings basis, Philippines is roughly around 14 and a half times mm -hmm. earnings. Uh, when you look at the earnings growth potential for the remainder of 2019 as well as in 2020, there is definitely a lot to like. But sorry, when you look at it purely from a sort of Southeast Asia perspective, Philippines is definitely a place where we want to be. Mm. When you look at specifically in North Asia, China is definitely you know, a place where we do want to be heading into 2020. I want to ask you about the Japanese stock market because it's an interesting one. You've seen this barbell approach by a lot of investors. They want safe haven trades yep. just in case and they want risk on to capture some of the upside and upside around a, a trade deal being achieved. And if you look at the market, we're a little bit off the peaks on, on the Nikkei 225. No matter how much more upside can be unlocked when you've still got that bid for safety that may just keep the Japanese yen supported. Yeah, the thing is with Japan is, is that we did see a decoupling of the yen and specifically with where the market movements are, right? Because the yen really hasn't been moving in a lot of direct you know, over the past you know, 12, 18 months. But with that said, you know, the markets are, have been kind of sort of, you know, sort of range bound as well. What's, I think the one difficult thing right now for Japanese corporates is really the earnings. You know, we're not seeing really good earnings growth in 2019. We haven't seen it at all. And so that's one of those situations where in 2020, can we potentially start to see something a little bit differently? Because in particular for Japanese stocks, you're seeing a lot of focus still on the defensives. You're seeing a lot of investors still focusing very much on the defensive place. They're still very much trying to chase for yield given where we are with negative yielding environment in Japan. But what we do see as some of the opportunities are actually still the financials. We do like a lot of Japanese banks in particular because obviously with a very strong balance sheet, they do have that ability to potentially you know, acquire assets if they want. And they're still using that very cheap funding source to try to actually lend you know, in elsewhere. They can use that cheap funding source in Japan and go to Southeast Asia, go to places like Thailand and elsewhere to actually get a much higher yield. But unfortunately, right now, we're sort of in this bit of a slowdown uh, from a global growth perspective. You know, a lot of companies in Southeast Asia aren't really increasing CapEx substantially. And as a result, these Japanese banks aren't finding it, you know, sort of that attractive to lend in these parts of the world. Ken, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, Ken, we're with us, a client portfolio manager, East Spring Investments. And uh, just a reminder, be sure to tune in later on for a first on CNBC interview with U.S. Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin. That's at 1400 CET. As the U.S. moves one step closer to a trade deal with China, relations in Europe are souring rapidly. The World Trade Organization is set to give the final go-ahead on billions of dollars of U.S. tariffs. They target a broad range of EU goods in retaliation for subsidies given to French plane maker Airbus. The deciding body meets in a couple of hours' time, just days before the levies are earmarked to kick in. Let's get out to Willem for more in Geneva. Willem, you've been chasing the story for a, a, a good couple of days now. Just give us a sense of what's likely to happen in the countdown now. 
So this is a very much a formality, this meeting this morning, Karen. It is the dispute settlement body, essentially the general counsel of the World Trade Organization. And after arbitrators ruled early this month against Airbus, it's now up to this general counsel to formally adopt that ruling to make it enforceable. Without a negative consensus, it's impossible for the Europeans to block it. So essentially, they would have to persuade every other member of the WTO that this was not a ruling that should be adopted. And that would include the United States, which, of course, was the complainant that pushed for this ruling. So that's unlikely to happen. Once they've adopted it, the US then has the legal right to enforce these tariffs, something that Cecilia Malmström, the EU Trade Commissioner, has said in the past would be uh, short-sighted and counterproductive. Obviously, the US intends to push ahead with these tariffs on Friday. They've made it clear they'd much rather have the tariffs in place and then start talking before we get to the point where we could see a negotiated settlement. The context for this obviously very important because a few months from now we'll see a similar ruling, ruling against Boeing from the WTO after the Europeans brought a similar complaint against Boeing going back 15 years. That's the reason they say it's short-sighted for the Americans to try and impose tariffs now because they'll face similar levels of countermeasures down the road. That's why Bruno Le Maire, the French finance minister last week, told us that he doesn't think there's any other option for the Europeans other than to retaliate. The question then is, how quickly do they retaliate? Do they wait for that Boeing ruling down the road or do they try and find a way to take action more quickly? Terrific. Willem, we'll catch up with you a little bit later on. Thanks very much indeed for that uh, from Geneva. Well, as I look at the uh, the forecast for Brexit, it, right. it seems as though things are brightening up. But in terms of the weather over Westminster, about 12 degrees, 87 percent precipitation. Disney. We all know what that means, don't we, Steve? <laughs> yes, we do, Jeffrey, And it's due to thunderstorm a little bit later as well. So I am fully prepared, I can assure you. But look, it's the weirdest mix here in London today. We'll discuss after the break. But what do you get when you had the Queen's speech, which we haven't had one for 839 days. That's the longest period in history. You add in Brexit, you add in torturous negotiations. Oh, yeah, chucking the household cavalry and the Extinction Rebellion. And what happens in London today? Well, it's anyone's guess, but we'll try and describe what we think will happen after a very short break right here on Scorebox. A CNBC signature event. East Tech West, CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nansha, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech, from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors, and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. Welcome back, everybody. The EU and the UK, of caution. Much work still needs to be done as Brexit negotiations intensify ahead of a key summit in Brussels this week. The chief negotiator for the EU updated diplomats on talks on Sunday. The FT reporting ambassadors have been left confused by the UK's fresh customs proposals. Meanwhile, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson's legislative agenda will be outlined today in a speech delivered by Queen Elizabeth. Uh, Steve is at Westminster. Uh, what's she going to say? 
oh, well, she'll, she'll come down the mail with her soldiers, otherwise known as the, the Mounted Household Cavalry, at 11 a.m. She'll get to Parliament around about 11.15. That's if the Extinction Rebellion don't try and stop her uh, en route down here, because you've got to add that element in as well. Uh, and then she'll lay out, apparently, these 22 new bills uh, for uh, the ensuing Parliament. But everybody knows in the United Kingdom we're on election watch as well. So you, there is a degree of understanding. When Jeremy Corbyn says, it's a stunt, it's ludicrous, this is just the government manifesto from the steps of the throne. For, for, you can kind of understand where Jeremy Corbyn's coming from because everybody knows it's all about Brexit at the moment and if this government can't get through a withdrawal agreement bill, if it does agree a withdrawal agreement bill uh, with EU negotiators, then it's all pie in the sky what these 22 new bills are anyway. Things on infrastructure, health service, mental health act, rail franchises, uh, more tougher on crime, you name immigration, um, points-based systems, it's all there and, and has been laid out as we explained at the Tory party conference just a couple of weeks ago. But it's all about Brexit. And quite frankly, uh, the torturously tight negotiations that are going on as we build up to this summit in Brussels on the 17th and 18th. And if there will be something to present uh, to uh, the, the leaders at that summit, which will be extraordinary, then we'll get the more extraordinary event, which is a sitting of Parliament on a Saturday, which we haven't seen for decades as well, uh, in which the government will try and get through uh, their bill through a parliament where they don't have a majority. So it is absolutely the most crazy week. And I know we've had a lot of crazy weeks in Brexit over the last few years, but I think this one could potentially top the lot as well. Uh, I mean, let's face it, no one quite thought that there could be this this customs idea or fudge where you have the Northern Irish remaining in a UK custom territory, but applying EU customs rules. And no wonder no one had thought of it before because it just seems so crazy. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.